This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. States should maintain COVID-19 restrictions, such as mask wearing, as case numbers halt their decline. That is something Tim and I just talked about. We're hearing that from the CDC, Tim. Yeah, we are. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky issued a sobering warning during a press briefing today. She talked about this more contagious variant. We just spoke about it, Carol. Dr. Ian Lusbader is Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, joining us on the phone, as he does most Fridays from New York City. Dr. Lusbader, it's great to have you back on the show. Um, How are things at NYU right now? Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Happy Friday. I think. How are you, Carol? (laughs) I'm okay. Good. Uh, Things uh, in New York in general and at NYU are uh, improving a bit. There are definitely COVID patients and there are hospitalized COVID patients, and we're certainly still seeing new cases, but certainly nowhere near the uh, surge that occurred really a, a year ago back in March, where every bed in the hospital was filled with COVID patients in the ICUs, and, uh, you know, the death rates were very high. So I think we're definitely making progress on vaccinations and inching towards herd immunity. Uh, We definitely have patients in the hospital, but not nearly at the rate uh, that were there previously. It's about approximately 10 percent of when it uh, was at its uh, peak. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about this more contagious B117 variant that Dr. Walensky brought up during the press briefing today. This is the one that was first found in the UK, and and she said it now accounts for an estimated of 10 percent of U.S. cases and that variants in California and New York also appear to spread more easily. You know, we've covered a lot of what happened in the UK in January and even in late December and it was not good there. And it was partly because, or li- likely, mostly because of this, this particular variant. Why aren't we seeing that happen here if the new variant is roughly 10% of new cases? So um, increased uh, contagion or transmissibility is different than increased lethality. We think the mechanism, or one of the mechanisms of how viruses spread more easily, and again, that those mutations are to the virus advantage, right? They're trying to spread as much as can be, would be that it lingers in the body longer before symptoms. So we already know it's a five to seven day incubation period where people can have the virus and show no symptoms. So it allows the virus to grow to larger numbers, be uh, present in larger numbers when people become symptomatic, coughing or sneezing, and therefore are able to infect more people. It's a higher concentration uh, of virus really before Uh, the patient is even aware that they're sick. So that's what we mean by increased uh, transmission or transmissibility, uh, increased contagion. It doesn't mean it's killing more people, but it does mean it can infect potentially more people. So I think we're not seeing as much of a problem because we are inching towards herd immunity. You know, it's guesstimated with people who've either um, had uh, COVID-19 or have had vaccines, maybe in the 40% range, uh, you know, somewhere in that range. And, and we think real good herd immunity to kind of burn this out would be maybe 50, 60, 70%. So I, that's why I think we're, we're not being overwhelmed by it. And it may become a more dominant 
a variant, uh, but as long as it's not killing more people, you know, that's good. Again, keep in mind you're infecting more people, so it could raise the number of people, right? If if 1% of infections, if 98 or 99% of people do great, and 1% do not do well, obviously the more people that are infected, you know, your numbers of hospitalizations will go up on that basis. But overall, I think uh, this will not be a big problem. We should, of course, still continue to use masks until this is really eradicated. And the masks are good because we're seeing less influenza and less other respiratory diseases. So masks may become somewhat of a cultural issue even Mm. after COVID-19 goes away. Yeah, I totally agree. I can see myself wearing it on public transportation or traveling. Um, so it sounds like, Ian, Dr. Lusbader, that we have, we're over the hump, in your view, even though we need to still be vigilant, that we're over the hump of the worst of it? You know, I think so. Cases are coming down. Uh, there were, you know, a number of hotspots that have improved. There are still some hotspots in the country. Uh, I believe even at this point, it looks like both vaccines and prior infections are providing some immunity uh, to these new variants. So I think as long as we do not get a mutation that is resistant, and we haven't seen that yet, uh, I believe slowly over time cases will come down. And, uh, you know, we do need to make extra effort to get those uh, vaccinations out, J&J, you know, the one shot, uh, and really even the single vaccination may help somewhat, although I've had several patients who get COVID in between their first and second shots. So people still need to be careful, Uh, you know, that three-week or four-week period after a first shot does not mean you're Superman and, you know, be reckless. But but does it mean that they get less, less sick from it? What does the data show? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't really answer that. Um, the patients I've seen get it and have done well. I don't have the numbers at my fingertips in that subgroup of people, how they do overall. I, good question. Uh, I'm not sure we actually have tracked that exactly, but uh, um, obviously they have some protection. Ian, if you if we weren't having a COVID discussion, you you know, you've been coming on our air for several years now, and typically we'd figure out a, a great topic that we wanted to discuss with you, and sometimes it was supplements, sometimes it was, uh, I don't know, we went all different places, um, but, it was, but it was great, and we would sometimes deal with, like, cannibal, you know, uh, medical marijuana, like, whatever was in the news. What would you, what's top of mind when we get beyond COVID? What's top of mind for you when you look at health care uh, and medical care? So first of all, kudos to you for broadening our exposure. I think we can get COVID tunnel vision and think this won't end. It will end. And um, and I think people are experiencing COVID fatigue. There is There are emotional consequences school educational consequences there are so many other things that we really need to keep our eye on so kudos for you for bringing that up and i think in medicine uh, what we're seeing slowly now is a return to people being aware about screening. They're coming in for their screening dermatology exam. They're beginning to come in, although with a little bit of fear, for their screening colonoscopy exams. Lots to talk about. We could talk about uh, those stool DNA tests. A lot of people ask about Cologuard. One of the interest, and these will all be future shows when post-COVID we'll have mm-hmm. lots of topics to catch up on. When is, uh, and, mm-hmm. Yeah, when is that going to be? 
You know, I think uh, this summer will be a different summer than last summer. I think there will be fewer masks. I think we will reach uh, over the next few months probably herd immunity, 50, 60, 70 percent. We're going to have a glut of vaccine coming with a J&J. I would be very surprised if that's not approved this weekend uh, by the FDA for emergency use. Um, we're going to have other vaccines coming in, AstraZeneca and, and Glaxo, and I and all of these are good. You know, some provide a little more or a little less protection, but at the end of the day, they will all reduce hospitalizations. So my feeling is we will have a fairly normal existence. I think some people will still choose to wear masks and in certain circumstances. Right. Uh, I flew down to Florida this weekend, and uh, the planes were packed, and wow. uh, people mm. were wearing masks. Yeah. But, you know, once they got there outside, uh, no. So I think we have a lot to be uh, keep on our radar. Okay, so I have to apologize because if you're watching us on YouTube, you could see Carol shaking her fist at me because I did it. I brought it back to COVID and I totally cut you off, Dr. Lusbader. As you were saying, once we are beyond this, what are we going to be talking about? You know, the plant-based diet, we've recently had some uh, uh, papers out about the benefits of that Mediterranean and plant-based diet reducing heart disease, which we, we need to get back to the basics. Um, low carbs, another study that came out showing poor quality carbs increased heart disease. So we need to talk about healthy lifestyles to kind of get the country up, moving, exercising outside, going for screening tests recent article also about mammography, some evidence that an annual mammography reduces breast cancer mortality in women ages 40 to 48. So there's lots of data. We need to carve out a little bit of time on Bloomberg to talk about some of this stuff to educate the public, and hopefully we'll do that uh, in the not-too-distant future. Hey, just quickly, just got about 30 seconds left. Do you feel like because of the, the pandemic and we realized, you know, I'm not taking us back there, but I mean, just, you know, if you're a healthier individual, you had a better chance of maybe fighting the virus not a guarantee but do you think we're more focused on our overall health and just got about 25 seconds we as we said covid has caused us to become hunks chunks and drunks and the people <laughs> who focused on health care uh, are are doing better and i think we need to refocus on becoming more hunks instead of the chunks and drunks that people who stayed inside became so i think we can refocus on that and get america healthier again I have a new T-shirt I'm going to How get. How have I not heard you say that, Dr. Lusbader? <laughs> no. Have you patented that? No, that's a common phrase. We talked oh. about that a few months oh. ago. It's a that, medical that was... phrase. Okay. It's what they talk about in medical I school I want to now. be a part of your medical meetings because we haven't used that too much around the newsroom. Hey, listen, Ian, be well. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. Some news about a Boeing 777 aircraft operated uh, by Rosaya Airlines making an emergency landing over in Moscow because of engine trouble. Now, Friday's incident, you know, coming less than a week after an aircraft of the same model flown by United suffered a dramatic engine blowout over Denver. We know that story. We were all over it, Tim. Yeah, we all saw the video of that engine just destroyed <sighs> midair. Yeah, it was just kind of staggering, which leads us to a great story reported for Bloomberg Businessweek about how Boeing's foe in the industry, we're talking about Airbus, is aiming to seize the skies as Boeing bumbles. Let's get the story from Bloomberg News Aerospace reporter Julie Johnson. She is with us on the phone in Chicago, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the Axis line in Brooklyn. Uh, the magazine has been all over, you know, what's been going on specifically with Boeing. I mean, it does feel like they just keep having problem after problem, and Maybe an advantage to Airbus, Joel. Yeah, the, the Boeing problems, it's just like, it, it's like endless. It's, it's um, kind of staggering and painful. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, some of them clearly 
within their control and others maybe maybe not but you know you just kind of feel for them for always yeah. having problems <laughs> but you know this story is um less about them i think than than airbus and uh, obviously the two are uh are sort of intertwined because i think it is like one of the world's greatest rivalry stories and as Boeing has um, sort of encountered these, these problems, self-inflicted and otherwise, um, Airbus now sees this opening at, that the pandemic sort of provides. And they have uh, a number of, of aircraft that are smaller and geared toward shorter routes. And that seems to be a thing that Boeing does not quite have in its repertoire and therefore Airbus really could see an opportunity here to kind of claim some of the skies from from Boeing. So, so Julie, I'm, I'm curious. You know, you you know Boeing especially well. What what did you find most interesting about this this story in the um, in the current issue of the magazine? So there are a couple of things that I just find endlessly fascinating, and and one is the very long tail to strategic decisions in this industry. So so part of what we're seeing right now is the fruition of product calls that Boeing and Airbus made a decade ago and um, that have led Airbus, you know, to have this product that Boeing doesn't quite have a response for at a time when coming out of COVID, that is going to be a really hot section of the market. So that's that's pretty interesting. And another, another thought here is sort of uh, COVID is the great amplifier, um, you know, going heading into the crisis last year, um, Boeing was already reeling from the 737 MAX um, grounding, which just siphoned off just staggering resources, and you know, from money to engineering talent. And, you know, Airbus didn't sit still. You know, Airbus has been putting its engineers to work for the last two years and really sort of trying to look over the horizon to the next generation, you know, the next huge breakthrough in aircraft um, in the 2030s and 2040s. And that is is hydrogen, right? Is that what the next generation of aircraft looks like? Well, this is where it gets interesting. Yes, Airbus is, is right now is putting a lot of money into hydrogen. And Boeing, whose CEO, by the way, used to run the engine division for General Electric and so knows a thing or two about propulsion. I think he's made this calculation that hydrogen's not, you know, is so far in the distance that it's not going to affect uh, product strategy for, you know, potentially for decades. So Boeing is gambling on biofuels, sort of sustainable, you know, uh, used kitchen oils mm. and, and, you know, algae that can burn like kerosene in conventional aircraft. And Boeing actually might according you know to some people who are a lot smarter than than I am but Boeing might be making the right bet for the 2030s well and what's because interesting what's interesting about the the aerospace industry Julie right is that i mean first of all planes are really expensive and they take a long while to develop and so they've got to be making decisions about kind of where uh, the air transport industry is for years to come. Uh, they've got to be making their big big, big bets now, and, and a wrong bet could really put them on the wrong course. Yes, that's absolutely right. And I think this is shaping up to be one of the most critical um, periods in Boeing's history, and I know we use that probably to excess. 
but uh, the next couple of years, Boeing has to really figure out what it's going to do to, to respond to this Airbus jet, the A321, and I'm sorry here for the acronyms, but the A321LR and XLR, which is, is just going to make hay in the middle of the market. I mean, it's outselling the Boeing planes that sort of come up against it by a ratio of about five to one. So the the duopoly right now is is even, but it's gonna start tilting pretty quickly to Airbus's favor. And Boeing, so Boeing's gonna, you know, you would think that they will have to do something and make the exact right call, or they are shut. You know, they're gonna lose a lot of ground in the most lucrative part of the market. What are the options, Julie? Well, Boeing, you know, Boeing's been kicking around a 757 replacement, and that was um, that was the sort of the predecessor to the Airbus jet that's done really well. It was a little bit ahead of its time and was not a huge seller, and it went out of you know Boeing let it go out of production around 2005 or so. So, so Boeing, you know, the Airbus jet right. um, has has some flaws and Boeing Boeing could potentially leapfrog it with an all new design but you know they are mm-hmm. bleeding money and it's really tough to commit to spending 10 or 15 or 20 billion yeah i mean their cash position certainly different as you put out you know point out in your story versus airbus certainly going into the pandemic um great story and then there's china but you guys have to read the story to find out more about that julie johnson thank you so much aerospace reporter at bloomberg news on the phone in chicago that story in the new issue of bloomberg business week magazine on newsstands at bloomberg.com slash business week and of course on the bloomberg terminal joe weber thank you so much have a great weekend editor at bloomberg business week from brooklyn this is bloomberg business week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. We certainly have all been keeping an eye on shares of Twitter, up another 5% after a 3.7% gain yesterday. Uh, Kurt Wagner, who covers the company, he reported, there's a great story in the terminal, Twitter finally starting to hustle. Yeah, I mean, it's been years that this company has been really keeping its product the same. Yeah, and slow to move and react to some things. Very true. Um, Remember Periscope is shutting down soon. Yeah, exactly. And Vine. Vine. It was TikTok before TikTok, as Tay Kim wrote in Bloomberg Opinion. So it's interesting that now investors are kind of excited that they're kind of laying out these long-term strategies. So let's see what our Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst, Mandeep Singh, has to say about it. Mandeep, so good to have you here. How are you? I'm good, Carol. How are you? I'm doing okay, doing well. Uh, not as well as Twitter shares, because <laughs> they've <laughs> definitely gotten a kick in the last couple of days. Uh, stock is now up almost 45% this year. So you've gone through what uh, the company said in that first analyst meeting since 2014, that first analyst day, I should say, since 2014. What stands out for you and what's significant? And is it worth the jump up in the share price that we're seeing? Yeah, so finally, I think the company has fixed all the product-related issues, especially they had in terms of getting advertisers on their platform. So, so far, if you look at, you know, Twitter's user base and average revenue per user, they were much below, you know, the likes of Facebook and even for that matter, Snap. And part of the reason, uh, you know, they didn't execute that well was because of all the, you know, platform ad-related issues 
uh, and the ROI on their ads that they weren't able to convince the advertisers to spend more on their platform. So finally, you know, they've uh, rebuilt, redesigned their ad infrastructure. They did launch a new display uh, response ads product. So that's resonating well with a lot of advertisers. And the hope is with their you know, revenue target to double uh, their annual revenue over the next three years, they can show consistent user growth, combine that with, you know, uh, advertisers coming to their platform, and that uh, will really, uh, you know, hold the top line above 25%, which we haven't seen for a long time with this company. You know, Mandeep, I got to tell you, I've, I've been on Twitter since I think 2008. I've spent way too many hours scrolling through tweets on my phone and on my computer. I use it a lot, Um, but the product hasn't changed that much since then. And if we think about other companies and the way that they've grown since then, uh, Facebook today looks nothing like it looked back in 2008. It has so many different products, Instagram in particular, that wasn't even a part of Facebook until 2012. Um, What what were Twitter's missteps in, in, in not really growing the product over the last few years? Yeah, so you bring up a great point, Tim. Uh, Twitter hasn't executed well, and uh, as part of that execution, they really botched up on all the M&A they did, you know, Periscope, Wine, and you contrast that with the Facebook that really, uh, you know, transformed Instagram into a big revenue generator for the company. And, and that's where, you know, the execution comes into a picture. Uh, Facebook really has done a phenomenal job of, revamping their product from time to time. And in case of Twitter, uh, even though their engagement, Twitter's engagement metrics are quite good, it's just they weren't able to monetize it properly. And at the same time, they weren't able to onboard a lot of new advertisers on the platform because no one was convinced that, you know, the ROI is there when it comes to ad spending. So I think what has changed in terms of drivers is really the pandemic has shifted a lot of the, you know, conversations that were happening outside uh, to uh, more of internet-based platform like Twitter. And that has been a nice tailwind coupled with, you know, all the product-related improvements that they've made. Listen, it's been around for 15 years, right? So started in 2006, eight years as a public company. I mean, should they be... You understand the tech sector, (laughs) Mandeep. Should they be further along at this point? Absolutely. You compare them to Snap and Pinterest. So uh, just to give you some numbers, Snap was almost half of Twitter's revenue uh, two years back. Now they have caught up with Twitter. Mm, And that just goes to show that, you know, Snap has executed so much better than Twitter. So clearly, uh, Twitter has been lacking execution. But in terms of the value of the platform, I do think there is a lot of value. There, There is engagement. It's just about running this company in a much better, in a more efficient way. So Twitter bought Review. It's the Substack-like competitor. The, the company has Spaces, which is this Clubhouse-like copycat. It has Fleets, which is like Instagram Stories or like Snap Stories. Um, which one of these sticks? Do they all stick? Well, so I think what sticks is the topics. So uh, topics is really the expansion hmm. beyond news and, uh, you know, the political uh, uh, kind of events and, and live events that they were really known for. So with topics, they're really saying the platform can be used 
for any sort of conversation. It just doesn't have to be, you know, current topics or news. It can be conversation about anything. So think of, you know, Reddit type of use case. Right. I, I feel Twitter will be more of a competitor to Reddit going forward. In terms of adding subscription revenue, it will be hard for Twitter to, you know, have uh, consumers right. pay on the platform. That's that's still a long way off. All right. Good stuff as always, Mandeep. Thank you so much, Mandeep Singh. He's Senior Tech Industry Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. And Twitter shares are up about 5% as we speak. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Gotta say, we're ready to wrap up the trading week because it was long week. Yeah. Long week. Hey, still 11 minutes left in, <laughs> in, in the trading day, TikTok, Carol. not that we're counting. No. Uh, it is time for the drive to the close. Chris uh, McNett is with us, co-head of sustainable investing at Wells Fargo Asset Management, joining us on the phone in San Francisco. Chris, yeah, kind of what a week, right? Oh, you said it. I mean, it's been an amazing week in a lot of different ways. And I think, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the weekend. It's right upon us. Well, any interesting fun flows that you guys saw amid the volatility, especially when it came to the tech trade, the momentum trade? Well, you know, so I think we look a little bit more longer term. Um, so I can't really comment about what we've seen in the last week or so. But overall, it, the, the flow story with respect to sustainable investing, which is where we really focus, mm -hmm. uh, has been just remarkable. I mean, we're breaking records for record breaking, right? Last year, there was more than 50 billion in net inflows to mutual funds and ETFs. Um, and that was 24% of overall flows into U.S. stock and bond funds for the year. So investors are really starting to vote, you know, with their wallets. How are you defining those type of mutual funds? Like, like what are the, what are the requirements for a company to fall into them? Yeah, so it's there's there's a couple of different ways to to peel the onion, but in general, this is looking at funds that go beyond just avoiding certain types of stocks or bonds and are really looking to promote either an environmental or a social uh, outcome along with a return outcome. And so Morningstar actually has a whole category and tracks what they call sustainable funds, uh, and we really align with with that kind of definition. But basically, it's it's looking at um, assessing investments on traditional financial parameters, of course, but also assessing their ESG credentials to try and formulate a, a good portfolio for clients. You know, there was an interesting story on the Bloomberg, and I talked about it with our team earlier, and it talks about portfolio warming is kind of the new climate mm. anxiety for fund managers. And, in, and they talked specifically about uh, the French insurer and investor AXA and how they are leading investors' efforts to gauge the rate at which businesses are, are, are warming the planet. And so basically they score, I guess, not by necessarily higher returns, but by generating a lower level of global warming. And I do think we are going get to get to a point where that's going to be of issue already is. I mean, and, and to Tim's point of like kind of how you measure ESG, especially when it comes to something like climate change. Yes, climate change is topic number one as far as what we're hearing from clients. I mean, there's continued focus on the investment risks associated with the changing climate, but now there's really a growing focus on the opportunities 
associated with investing on the right side of climate change. And so if you think about something like that, that temperature metric, uh, the thinking goes that the, the higher it is now, which equates to a warmer future, the lower returns we're all going to experience going forward, right? So it's investors now are starting to think about, well, how can I have a successful portfolio in a failed planet? So it's really about looking at which companies are adapting their business models and try and try and position themselves where they could thrive in a lower carbon or a no carbon economy. And that's where we're seeing a lot of interesting opportunities. I'm wondering when it comes to the people who are investing, are there any sort of common threads that, that run among them demographics wise and, and, and certainly in like generationally or age wise, or, or does it really run the gamut? It does run the gamut. I would say that we see pockets of uh, more enthusiasm, if I could put it to you that way. So if you think about one of the biggest tailwinds that, that we see for sustainable investing or for ESG investing is generational wealth transfer. Right? There's billions, tens of billions of dollars that it's going to be changing hands. It's already started to change hands, and it's going to millennials and younger generations. And they really don't think about sustainability and investing as mm. separate, and just like they don't think of sustainability and consumption as separate. It's really interwoven. So that's a pretty powerful uh, signal that we see. And then they don't have a huge wallet share now, but they're a, a, the largest part of the workplace. Uh, their portfolios are growing. So we see that there. And on the institutional side, it really cuts across all kinds of different dimensions. You know, they're really long-term investors. And so with the worst effects of climate change are going to be felt out into the future, which is why those institutional investors are really focused and keen on uh, preparing their portfolios now. Well, and I do wonder how much pressure, you know, BlackRock talks about and Larry Fink certainly talk a lot about uh, the climate and looking at their investments and making sure uh, increasingly that uh, they're thinking about the investments they make and, and the footprint that that particular investment makes uh, on, on the climate specifically. I do wonder how much pressure is coming down from institutional investors, really, really pressure that says, if you're going to have a big carbon footprint, I don't care how much money you make. We're not going to invest in you. You do see some of that already. Uh, so you just look at the energy sector and how it shrunk as a share of the, the market capitalization. Um, and, and, and really, there's, there's sort of two main techniques. I mean, if, if, the only hammer, if the only tool that you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So it, it did start with, with divesting, with withdrawing capital from fossil fuel stocks. But we actually have a view that some of the, the heaviest emitting industries today, maybe they have the most to lose in the first instance, but potentially the most to gain medium to long, longer term as they shift their business models and tap growth areas. You know, we really think about this as a, as a whole economy approach. It's really easy just to, to focus on energy or the higher emitters, but it's really uh, going to take a whole economy, which, which frankly uh, broadens the, uh, the investment opportunities set out. How much does the conversation about ESG, at least right now, exclude climate change like you know facebook for example some people might not want to invest in facebook because they don't think that it is a company that actually does good they think that it's a service that doesn't do good is that part of the conversation right now it is absolutely i think there is more focus on climate change just because we're, we're seeing it now it's becoming more tangible but you think about what are some of the other themes you hit on one there we think about that as human capital and how employees uh, work to engage their employees, more engaged employees, generally more pr productive, more productive employees uh, can create you know, more innovation and more, more, more growth. Um, you also see, particularly after last year with the terrible 
uh, events we saw in the U.S. in diversity and inclusion, right. which is really related to one extent with, with, with employees and human capital, but also culture. You know, institutional investors are really focusing on diversity and inclusion now, right. both for their investee companies, but also their investment managers, because diversity imbalances can create financial and reputational risk. All right, we got to run. Hey, Chris, thank you so much. Chris McNett, co-head of sustainable investing at Wells Fargo Asset Management on the phone from San Francisco. Last fall, PwC, Tim, came out and they said that almost 60% of mutual fund assets will be ESG by 2025. Oh, you mentioned Larry Fink. I mean, he's every, every year he's beating this drum. Yep, and getting more and more specific about it, what he wants. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.